wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. Head to bleedingdaylight.net and you can find many stories of people kicking the darkness, as well as links to our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter accounts. Please share this and other episodes of Bleeding Daylight with others. On the surface, today's guest had it all, but there was a very different story behind the scenes. I'll introduce you in just a moment. What do you do when something you believe is within your control starts to take more and more control over you? How do you begin to break free from something society tells you is normal and even desirable? Roseanne Forte was a successful executive and a ministry leader in her church. She was a wife and a mum of four. As the stresses of life began to grow, she developed a secret life that threatened to bring her undone. Roseanne is the best-selling author of the book, The Plans He Has For Me, and I'm pleased to have her join us on Bleeding Daylight today. Roseanne, thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. Help me get a picture of what life was like for you before you came to realize that things weren't quite as they should be. I had quite a nice life, actually. I was a successful executive. I had children. You know, everything kind of like this world tells you is success. Just climbing up the corporate ladder and doing some great things in business and following all the rules about drinking alcohol too. It it just kind of was pervasive everywhere. I started when I was a teenager in high school to fit in. And then I drank in college because that's what college kids do to have fun. It continued on in the business world at lunches or happy hours or business dinners, uh, sometimes even in the boardroom. He used it to create romanticism. When I was single, it was on dates. When I was married, it was, you know, with my spouse. Alcohol just ended up being a reason to do everything. <laughs> it was just really kind of weird, if you know, as I, I look at it uh, in the rearview mirror. It's interesting that you're talking about alcohol as just being all pervasive. It's all there. And at this stage, you were what we would call a, a social drinker because we, we have this idea that those people who have a problem with alcohol, it's like their first drink is kind of the end of them, that then it becomes alcoholism. But this was not the case for you. This was many years. Decades. Through business, through life in general, where you were definitely a social drinker and it caused you no issue, did it? No, not for decades. I, I think I, it wasn't till later in life that I started using it to manage stress. You know, a difficult marriage, a lot of children, a full-time job, stressors at work. And I think the TV shows these days show that, you know, if, if you're watching a sitcom, everybody's cracking open the beer, pouring the bottle of wine after work, and I was no different and managed stress. And then life got worse. And I used it to check out and I wasn't using alcohol just to have a couple of sips and taste it. You know, I was using it to feel the effects and kind of check out a life. You know, eventually it starts taking a toll. You become less productive. You may have a lot of shame about like, what did I say? What did I do? 
You're dealing with maybe a hangover that gives you guilt and shame. Maybe you got in a fight that you shouldn't have gotten in or you wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. My health started suffering. My blood pressure started going up. My weight became uncontrollable. By the time you recognize the toll it's taken on you and you go, well, I need to do something about this, you find that, wait, why why can't I stop? Is there a problem? <laughs> what do I do? You start negotiating with yourself, and that's not pretty either. And I suppose this is the, the problem, that it's not a problem, it's not a problem, it's not a problem. Suddenly it is, but you don't know about it, and by the time you recognize it, you, you're fairly well gone in, into this problem drinking. I don't think any of us start drinking you know, with any intention of creating a problem. And it it can happen, well, it can happen quickly for some, and it can happen over decades for others. By the time you realize it's a problem, it's controlling you and you're not controlling it. And at this same time, you're involved in church ministry, and this must have been an incredible tug for you on one hand, you're there on Sundays and, and you're someone who's in ministry. And then throughout the week, you're living a different life. Tell me about what that did for you mentally and emotionally. It was a process. So I think back to when I was really involved in church ministry. And back then, a lot of my church friends drank. And I don't I don't know that I recognized it as a problem back then, but we were all kind of social drinkers. I was in ministry, and this is funny because I just started a podcast, and I had my pastor from years ago interview me in my first podcast. And the poor guy, I was in charge of a a ministry for him, and I was considered part of unpaid staff. (laughs) And I said, by the way, while I was working for you, I got a DUI. (laughs) I just felt bad because he's like, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, uh because you would have told me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I I think that's a lot of the reason that I didn't share with people because I didn't want the stigma of an alcoholic. You know, they look to a higher power. I already had a higher power, Jesus. And I suppose that that that's the problem with so many of those things that happen in secret is that there's this sense of shame. We don't want to tell anyone. We try and battle on with it ourselves. And of course, most of the time we can't do it ourselves. So then we want to find a way through that. And yet, if we actually came to the people that are around us and love us, we'd probably find a solution and a way forward. But shame holds us back. Was that your experience? Oh, 100%. I was having a hard time dealing with it. And I remember my my husband at the time he talked about like, do you need to go to AA? And I'm like, no, I'm not one of those. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of this thing. I have a problem, but it's not that, you know, that big of a problem. I would have ended up in AA, but it may have taken another five or 10 years, right? Because you run into the big hard brick wall there. You're court ordered or you're losing your marriage over it, or you've gotten a diagnosis, a car accident, something major. And then you're like, well, I have no other choice. I want people to recognize it's the substance that's the problem. It's the lies of this world that's the problem. 
it's not you. <laughs> we, we tend to jump at like the person has the problem. And I'm like, no, the substance is the problem. And, and the lies of this world about the substance is the problem. And I want people to choose an alcohol-free life because it's a much better way to live. I don't use any of the terms like alcoholic or sober or recovery. I used to smoke cigarettes. I used to be a really heavy smoker. It was the same kind of problem, and I didn't recover from it. I wasn't a smokeaholic or a cigarette-aholic. I'm kind of using the same principles. I quit because it was killing me. I would say that there's a lot more people who are in the basket of, I drink, and perhaps I drink a bit too much, and maybe life would be better without it. And I imagine that the sorts of things that you're talking about are going to be a bit more attractive for people to say, look, I don't have that high-end problem, but I do realize that this is an issue and I'm not living life really the way that I should. Exactly. The book I have is a, is a 12-week devotional and it's a challenge. It's a 12-week challenge because I want people to understand what's possible when you put it to the side. And that's that differentiates a lot of other things out there where you've got to do this forever. And I want to empower people to identify the lie and choose because they understand the consequences of, of what's happening. And, and I want them to experience, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit and all of the benefits that, that God has for you. I mean, it's the plans he has for me, right? <laughs> and those plans did not even start coming to fruition until I put alcohol to the side. We know that COVID-19 has been something that has completely changed our world, but it has been the spark for a number of life changes. And I know that when COVID-19 hit, that was a spark for you. Tell me about that realization and, and what you did with it. We were talking about those brick wall events, and I, I suppose that was a little bit of mine. I had gone through a divorce, a 29-year marriage, and I was at kind of the lows of lows because I had prayed for that marriage. He wasn't a believer, and I had prayed for his salvation and our marriage, and I was using alcohol, really, to just try and deal with the consequences of that marriage. And so my drinking went off the rails after the divorce. COVID-19 hit. And I also, as I mentioned, I used to be a pretty heavy smoker, but I quit like 15 years ago, 17, probably now I lost track. If you remember when COVID was in Italy and they were showing all those pictures of bodies that they couldn't even, you know, body bags, and it was rolling into the United States any day. Before that, I used to just pray to God. I'm like, you know, God, I'm kind of done here. I'm, I'm ready. If you want to send the bus... You know, I wasn't going to do anything, but I didn't want to be around anymore. But then COVID came and I thought about dying in a hospital on a ventilator by myself. And I'm like, nah, that's not the way I want to go, you know, and that scared me enough because alcohol, it impacts your immune system and your lung function, two things which you really needed to survive COVID. So that motivated me to quit. And then I found a secular coaching program. It was online. I joined that and that was a three-month challenge. And at the time, I couldn't even imagine quitting forever. But I, I knew I needed to get healthier, 
I knew I needed to figure out what it would feel like if I put it to the side. So I took the challenge. And by the end of 90 days, I had more peace, more joy. My blood pressure was down. My resting heart rate was down. My weight was down. And I was completely transformed. I was like, wait a minute. And I recognized all the biblical principles that were being taught in that program. And I was like, why didn't I get this in the church? Like, why didn't I understand all this? Ended up working for that program as an enrollment coach after I graduated and a client journey coach. And I used to talk to a lot of Christians that would come in and say, I feel so much guilt and shame. And is this program okay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're going to recognize all the biblical principles as you go through. I started writing down scripture and prayer for the clients that were Christians, and they loved it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, Roseanne, you need to keep doing this. This is amazing. And that's kind of how the book came about, too. So it was just the program I went through was very, very expensive. And it was effective. And I was like, I know God can do a better job at keeping people following this path. And his word is more effective. So that's why I put it together. Take me back to the mindset that you had when you were first entering this program. Because obviously you recognized that drinking to excess was an issue. But did you have in mind that at the end of this program, if it was going to be successful, that at the end of this program, you would be completely alcohol-free? Or did you think, oh, this is just going to take me back to when alcohol was just something that I have as part of my life? What was your mindset? Did you realize that this was heading towards an alcohol-free life? I remember thinking I needed to quit and I needed to understand what it would be like to quit for that long because I had never done it. I felt like alcohol would be better out of my life. I wanted control over it as opposed to it controlling me. I'm pretty sure I did not have the mindset of, well, this is going to be forever. I think I wanted to manage it. But once I experienced like the massive transformation, you know, sleeping better, mental clarity, happiness. Remember, I'm, I'm from a place where it's like, yeah, okay, God, I'm done in this world too. Just excitement and joy and purpose. You know, you kind of measure it. And especially when you attach it to God's word, you know, drinking is not a sin, but getting drunk is. And I feel like the walk that I had with God, understanding that I never wanted to drink unless it was to the point of drunkenness. So I just love feeling God with me. every. Like I wake up every morning and I'm like, what's next, God? <laughs> like, And happy and joy. And I, I hadn't experienced that before. And so I don't want to do anything to take that away. It's interesting that you mention that drinking is not a sin, but being drunk is. And yet you mentioned there's a lot of people that were entering this secular program that were Christians and they, they had this guilt. And I'm wondering about one of your earlier comments too, where you said, I didn't hear this coming from the church. Do you think that there is such, a, I guess, a backlash against earlier legalism that says do not drink, even though the scripture doesn't forbid it, that people want to stay away from that. They, they can't seem to find that middle ground of saying, hey, look, yeah, drinking is not a sin, 
but getting drunk is, and there's a lot of people in our churches that are taking alcohol too far. I don't believe in legalism, but I do believe in truth. And I just think that if you look at society and how how they misconstrue what alcohol provides, i.e. relaxation, connection, romanticism, fun, those are not any of the things that God intended for us. None. You know, he, he meant for us to be connected in a very different way than alcohol connects us. As a matter of fact, I don't think it connects us at all. It, it provides false connection. We're not supposed to relax with a substance. We're supposed to meditate on God's word and have peace that he's in control, right? And if you just take it step by step, again, I, I just like to teach choice. God allows us to choose him or not choose him. He allows us to choose many things that can take us away from him and separate us from him. And so I just like to provide the truth about alcohol so that people can choose and make that that choice, at least with truth. You wanted to help other people experience the freedom and release that you had found. And so you wrote The Plans He Has For Me, a 12-week daily devotional for freedom from alcohol. Tell me about that writing process when you came to take those principles that you recognized as biblical principles in in the program that you had gone through and started to put it into words and on the page. What was that process like for you? It was really a wonderful process for me because I really felt very connected to the Holy Spirit in terms of guiding me and what to say. It's a very positive and loving approach. It's not a shame approach. I call my journey, the collision of personal suffering, God's word, and the science of the of the mind, because this is really a, a, a neurological habit. God created our minds to be energy efficient machines, right? We can learn how to drive to and from work such that we could take that drive without even having any awareness about how we got from point A to point B. Well, that's our subconscious mind at work. When we practice these things, they become automatic in our subconscious mind. Well, we can practice sin that way too. Our subconscious mind doesn't care if we put good habits in or bad habits in. It just memorizes them. And that's why it becomes so difficult to change once we've established that routine. But the wonderful thing is that our subconscious mind is like 90% of our mind and 10% is conscious, but that 10% can look at what's happening at the other 90 and go, ah, that's what's operating. It's telling me a lie. It's telling me it's going to relax me. It's telling, oh, that's a lie. And, and it's like you catch the lie. I think uh, day two is Romans 12, two, which talks about renewing your mind. And Romans was written I think in AD 60. Well, guess what? The science of neuroplasticity, which means we can change our neural pathways, wasn't developed until 1960. So are you surprised that God knew it 1900 or wrote it down 1900 years earlier? When you say, what was it like writing it? It was fun because I like tying all the scientific principles. Like, wait a minute, God told me I would be a slave to sin. And that's exactly, I call this psychological slavery. 
Oh, God knew that all along. He was warning me because he loves me. We all think that this is a, you know, just a bunch of rules to not make life fun. And now I look at it as loving instruction to keep us out of pain and suffering. And when you kind of view it in that light, it's so much easier to be all in on, on what he says. Now, the book, as you say, takes people through 12 weeks and you're asking people to remain alcohol-free for 12 weeks and the devotionals that, that go along with it. I imagine that there are people thinking that, yeah, maybe I should cut down, but 12 weeks without alcohol, and I suppose people that are saying that, it might be an indication that there is an over-reliance on alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you hit the, hell <laughs> or the nail on the head. That is it. You know, even 12 weeks can be daunting for a lot of people. A lot of people try the, you know, dry January, sober October, or maybe even Lent, but they're white knuckling it and waiting for that day. And this is a challenge that will not only detox your body, but allow you to develop new habits. I would have to agree if 12 weeks seems daunting, it means like, wow, why, why does that seem so daunting? Because it's a challenge and people need to want to know that, the, that there's something better. They know it's affecting them. You know, let's say whether it's weight or blood pressure, or maybe it is, you know, your doctor's gone, well, something's going on with your liver enzymes. And you're like, okay, well, I'll just try this for 12 weeks. When you think 12 weeks is daunting, it's it's a sign that it's it's more controlling you than you are it. And one of the things that we know is just giving something up, taking something out of your life can be difficult, but when you're replacing it with good habits, and in this case, a, a greater closeness to God, I suppose that that's the key to it, isn't it? That you're not just taking something away, you're replacing it with something far better. Yeah, Rodney, and actually, um, that's, thank you for, for mentioning that, because what I try and do, encourage people in that second four-week period is to focus on a gift that they know they have. Usually alcohol takes so much time with we're drinking, we're recovering from drinking, we're thinking about how to stop drinking. That's a, a lot of hours in the day. <laughs> Some people say, well, I only do it on weekends or three nights a week, but they do it to such an extent that they've wiped out their whole weekend. What are you going to do with your time? And there's there's usually something like, I wish I would have done, I'd love to learn this bowling, flower arrangement. It doesn't matter what it is, singing, dancing, painting, carpentry. Uh, there's something that you wish you could do. And I really encourage people to find that something that gives them joy such that if they were to, to begin drinking again, they wouldn't find the time for that or the joy in that anymore. As people have followed through your book, The Plans He Has For Me, there must be enormous relief for many. What has been the response to those who have read through the devotional and have come to the end of that 12 weeks and said, I now feel that I'm free from this thing that held me? It's so fun to watch people. I mean, third party, sometimes I get it through a third party, right? We don't know how our drinking affects other people, but people say it's a miracle. Like, they're so much happier and a lot of a lot of times the people around us notice more than we do but we generally notice 
you know, we're sleeping better, we're feeling better, we're more connected with people. People are pretty, pretty happy with their transformation. And that's, that's so gratifying to me. If people are wanting to get hold of the devotional or to connect with you, where's the easiest place for them to find you? Yeah, the devotional um, is on Amazon. My website is just like the book, theplanshehasforme.com. I have a, a new, a brand new free resource called Freedom from Alcohol. It's a pretty short read. You can download that from my website. Also, find out more about the coaching that I do. I do do worldwide coaching. There's a whole bunch of information, including that free download on my website. And I will put links so that you can easily find that devotional. You can easily find Roseanne's website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. Roseanne, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you, to hear about your journey and the hope that you're offering to others. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, Rodney, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.